Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Amen. Amen. You be seated. Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. You get past the five books of Moses and Joshua, and then you come to the book of Judges, the saddest book in all the Bible. Because of the great heritage and the great history that these people had either experienced, seen, or heard about. The title of this series is Unfaithful, and we're just going to kind of dig the first trench in the field tonight and begin to dig into this book over the coming weeks as we get ready for refresh and after refresh. Because I think this book is important for the times in which we live a time when it may very well be that America is in the first days or is in the middle of a silent judgment that could possibly become a very visible judgment in our lifetimes. When you think about the word unfaithful, you typically think about a moral collapse in a marriage. There's probably not a family here that somewhere in your family, one side or the other, immediate family or extended family, has not been touched, hurt, wounded, grieved, and brokenhearted over someone who has been unfaithful. It does not happen without consequences. Uh, while our society tries to convince itself that life goes on and you just pick up and you just keep moving, the scars of unfaithfulness remain. In the book of Hosea, there's at least 16 times, maybe 20, but there are at least 16 times in the book of Hosea where Hosea accuses the people of God of spiritual adultery or of harlotry or of whoredom. God, in his inspired word, decided to say that the word that describes what happens when my people walk away from me, when they forget my blessings, when they forget my goodness, when they forget my grace, when they uh, break my covenant, it is unfaithfulness. It is a broken relationship. And so when, when the book of Judges shows up on the pages of Scripture, we find a nation in a crisis. And this is a nation that should have never been in this kind of crisis. If they had listened to God, if they had obeyed God, they would have not been there. But this is a nation that's in a spin cycle. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know what happens at your house, but sometimes we overload the washing machine uh, because you want to wash less loads and you're worried that Al Gore might get upset because you're wasting too much water or something. And, and when you do, and especially when you've got a heavy load and it's got like blue jeans and stuff in it, does, does your washing machine ever get out of whack a little bit and things start banging in it? And, you, and it sounds like, you know, it sounds like there's a gorilla on the outside of your house trying to get into it, you know, and you're just thinking, oh, it'll stop in a little while. This is the kind of spin cycle this nation was in. I mean, it was spinning out of control and everything was banging up against the barriers that God had put up and the walls that God had put up. And in fact, they were breaking out of those barriers. This is a blatant picture of what fickleness looks like to God. 
I want you to think about this nation. This nation set apart to be a blessing now has the hand of God's judgment against it, a nation of moral and ethical standards on which every great nation has been built. The Ten Commandments is now violating every one of them. This happened in a short period of time. It, it did not happen overnight, but it happened in a short period of time. And as you see in your notes, uh, there's uh, six judges primarily, the major judges, in chapter 3 through chapter 16. But I, I want you to pick up in chapter 2 and verse 18, then we're going to bounce around a little bit in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 2 and verse 18. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and, and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways." Now, remember, these are people whose parents or themselves personally, whose parents or grandparents or great-grandparents had been a part of some of the greatest days in the life of Israel. They had seen God's hand. If they had not seen it, they had heard the stories. You remember, they, they didn't have internet and computers and video games and all. what they did is they sat around the table in the house and they did what Deuteronomy says to do you tell the stories you teach your children so all of their lives they have been raised on how the hand of God had provided for them how God had delivered them but apparently the memory of those times or the opportunity to continue to live in those times didn't mean enough to them for them to stand on the principles that had given victory to their ancestors. These people knew better. They were not ignorant of God's ways. I remember Ron Dunn said in the, in the early 1980s, uh, Ron Dunn said, you know, he said, it's going to be harder on those of us who are, who are Bible-believing evangelicals and it's going to be on the people who don't believe the Bible and try to argue that parts of the Bible aren't real and aren't important and some's not important as others and this miracle really didn't happen and, and that's really a fabrication and those really aren't the words of Jesus. He said it's going to be harder for us in the evangelical church that believes the Word of God because if they had heard the kind of preaching we have heard, they would have repented by now. The difference is we've heard it so long we take it for granted. We assume we'll always have it. We assume we'll always have the opportunity. Do you know that the people in England at one point never thought that their churches, that they sacrificed and sweated and built, that they would become mosques and apartment complexes and coffee shops and flats for people to live in? But they did because somewhere they forgot Somewhere they forgot. The people in Judges forgot. They forgot the giving of the land of Canaan. They forgot the provisions of God. They forgot God's protection. They forgot all the victories that they had experienced or their forefathers had experienced. And, and they assumed apparently that God owed them a blessing regardless of how 
they acted. It's hard to find a book more relevant to our day than this book. In fact, historian uh, Arnold Toynbee says of the first 22 civilizations in the stages of world history, 19 of them collapsed when they reached the moral stage that the United States is currently in. And he said that over 25 years ago. Dr. Stephen Mueller, former president of John Hopkins University, said, failure to rally around a set of values means that we are turning out highly skilled barbarians. Society as a whole is turning out barbarians because of the discarding of the value system it was built on. To restore its lost value system, America would have to return to its faith in God. There can be no value system that transcends man's natural self-centeredness where one man's values are esteemed as good as another's. Now, here's the good news. The good news is in the midst of a bad time, God provided some positive role models. Now, these are not perfect men. I mean, all you got to say is the name Samson, and the first thing you think about is not godly. <laughs> but he was a man used by God when he listened to God, when he obeyed God, when he followed God's ways. His parents had raised him in the right way. They had raised him according to certain vows, but Samson made some bad choices as an adult, which just is a reminder to you, if your kids turn out lousy, it doesn't mean that you've always been a lousy parent. It means they've made lousy decisions. Don't beat yourself up when you've prayed and you've offered your kids to the Lord and you've covered them and you've led them and you've guided them. If they choose to make bad choices, that's their choice. Okay, so Samson made some bad choices. He was put in a good environment to hear from God and to keep a vow, but he broke those vows. But when you read the book of Hebrews, you find that the major judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah are all mentioned in the book of Hebrews in the, in the hall of fame of faith. So God apparently looked at their lives and said, I can go with those because God knows that none of us are perfect. I mean, if you are, I need you to take the floor right now. But I mean, none of us are perfect. All of us have flaws. All of us have failures because we're sinners saved by the grace of God, but we're still prone to sin. And so God raises up these men, not perfect, but men and women who were available to him at a time of need, who stood up and took charge, and at least for a season— for a few years, there was a fresh breeze of God in the land. Now, when that judge would die, they would go back to their old ways. But I don't know, on a hot day like today, a fresh, cool breeze from God wouldn't be bad even if only for a few hours. And it wouldn't be bad even if only for a few years, God would send a fresh breeze across this land and revive us once again, according to his word. Following Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The nation said, Joshua 24, 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And of course, you know that in the Hebrew, written in the margins, it says liar, liar, pants on fire, because they really didn't mean that. This was how powerful the influence of Joshua was. 
how persuasive. The, the evidence of the life of Joshua was so powerful that the people said, oh, yes, we'll do that. But they had not examined their hearts. But remember, Joshua said, if you don't keep this, the Lord's going to judge you. So what's the book that follows Joshua? Judges. Why? Because they didn't keep the word. It's a reminder that we are all one generation away from failure. It's been said for years that Christianity is one generation away from extinction. And a church or a family is one generation away from failure that does not stay focused on the Lord God. Not only were they a nation in a spin cycle, but they were a nation without leadership. Now, I don't need to belabor this point a lot because you know where I stand on this. I think we are a nation without leadership. Um, I, I think we... We long for the days of strong leaders. Uh, I, I remember uh, a few days ago, I was having a conversation with somebody, and I said, you, you remember the first Iraq war? Man, you just had this feeling with Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell that nobody was going to stop us. Now we really don't know the names because they change so much. And, and they get weary of the battle and of fighting the politics of our land and they just decide it's better to just retire. You know, like him or not, when Patton rolled into town, somebody was going down and it wasn't going to be him. I mean, we had a nation of leaders. You could always look across the landscape of our nation. When I was growing up, I can still remember, you could look across the, and you could say, there's a man that potentially could be president in four years and eight years and 12 years and 16 years. There's a man that could rise to a position of prominence. There's a man that, that God could use in a great way. And you look across our landscape now and you wonder, where are they? Where are, I mean, we have a major political party right now that's basically going to nominate a candidate on the principle of anybody but Obama. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a low standard of leadership, folks. I mean, where's the vision? You know, where's the vision of leaders in this country? On every level, level politically, spiritually, morally, ethically. Where's the leadership? Where, where's the tenacity of generations of old that believe that we could do anything with God's help? Now, we don't believe we can do anything whether God helps us or not. That's the book of Judges. Joshua's death left a vacuum. I want you to, to go to chapter 1 and verse 27. I want you to see what happened to these tribes of Israel. After Joshua, the death of Joshua, verse 27. We're just, I'm just going to read parts of these verses, and I want you to see a phrase that keeps showing up. The word, two words, did not. Verse 27, but Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages. And it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. By the way, we'll get to this in another message, but they were never told to put the Canaanites to forced labor. They were told to put them out. But Manasseh said, oh, we can control them. We'll just make them work for us. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor, but not for long. 
Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 34, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Now the tribe of Dan is under control of foreigners. Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done. Maybe they knew, but they didn't know enough to care. Joshua's last public act was to lead the people in a covenant. Judges is a story of people who repeatedly broke the covenant. By the book of Judges, you could write defeat instead of victory, failure instead of success, bondage instead of conquest, oppression instead of freedom, decline instead of growth, disunity instead of unity, disobedience instead of obedience. And the failure was twofold. First of all, Judges won. They failed with their military. Their military became weak and could not finish the task. Secondly, they failed spiritually. The military failed, and then the country lost confidence, the nation lost confidence, and then spiritually they began to fail because they had always looked at our military will drive these people out. Our soldiers will get these people out of our land, and when they couldn't do it, then they failed spiritually. Gary Enrig, who wrote an excellent book on Judges, says there's never been a time like our time when God's people were overwhelmed by such a flood of immorality and amorality. It is perhaps more like a tidal wave than a flood because it threatens to carry everything away before it, leaving only destruction in its wake. This book is a, the consequence of trying to survive without God. Joshua is a book of conquest. Judges is a book of defeat. Joshua is a book of faith. Judges is a book of unbelief. Joshua is a book of unity. Judges is a book of anarchy. In Joshua, God's word is central. In Judges, it is neglected. Here are the two key phrases that you need to hang your hat on. In Joshua, the people said, we will not forget the Lord. In Judges, it says, the people forgot the Lord. We will not forget the Lord. But then you get to the book of Judges, and God says of them, the people forgot the Lord. And then there's a covenant broken, chapter 2 and verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, or Bosham, whichever way, depends on whether you're from southern Israel or northern Israel. <laughs> if you're in the south, it's Bochum. If you're in the north, it's Boshim. <laughs> and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? 
God is verbalizing. I can't believe a people that I've done this much for are acting like this, are breaking this covenant that I made with Abraham. Now, there's two significant places mentioned here. First of all is Gilgal, the place of significance in Judges. It's the crossing where they crossed the Jordan River. It was the place where Joshua would go to meet with God. It's a place of blessing. But it says that the Lord came down from Gilgal to Bosham. He went down. They were going down. God went down. He went down from the place of blessing to the name of this area means weeping. God went to a place of weeping. He was weeping over the condition of his people, the breaking of the covenant. They moved from blessing to, to weeping. It's as if by God moving from one place to another, he was picturing for them how far they had fallen in their commitment to him. He was giving them a visible picture as the angel of the Lord moved from one place to the other. He said, you know, remember we used to be over there where God was blessing, where I was doing great things and you were following me, and now look at where we are. And it didn't even change them. They went about their sinful ways. They continued to ignore the Lord. And judges should have never happened because God had made a covenant. Remember, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. And God said to Abraham, I will bless you and give you a child of promise and your your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. I will make you a great nation. Not only will I make you a great nation, I will make you a nation that will be a blessing to all other nations. And now here they are, just a few generations removed from some of the greatest victories in Israel's history, and here they are about to be cursed. You know, one of the things that's happening in Israel today is they are moving from the, the last survivors of their war for independence in 1948. And people that fought in that and people that fought in the Six-Day War, and, and they're dying off. And now it, when you visit Israel, you, you can hear among people and you can hear it under in the undercurrent of what's going on there that peaceful coexistence with their enemies seems to be a more viable option than standing up against their enemies. They've forgotten that in their grandparents' generation, they had no land, they had no capital, they had no army, they had no homes, they had no rights. They were an outcast, dispersed people, and if Hitler had had his way, he would have killed every one of them. Hitler had a plan to kill every Jew in America by 1954 when he took over America. That was his game plan. And now there's a generation that has enjoyed the prosperity of Israel and the rebuilding of Israel and the people that have come from all over the world to live there that is coming along and saying, we can get along with people that want to kill us. We can get along with people. It's, all it is is a repeat of the book of Judges. They've forgotten that God blessed them with the land. I know Harry Truman agreed to it, and I know the UN signed off on it, but it was God that gave them that land. That's just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. 
And here's a people who have forgotten it. They've forgotten God's blessings and they broke the covenant. Let me just ask you to just stay in, in Judges, but let me read for you Exodus 23, verse 28. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become too desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God had told them. I mean... They, they would go to worship. They would go in, in a tabernacle. They would celebrate uh, everything that they were supposed to celebrate in their feasts and in their sacrifice. God had said, don't you make a covenant with them. Don't you make a contract with them. Don't you, de don't you deny what I've told you to do in the word because if you do, they're going to become a snare to you. Guess what? They became a snare to them. Isn't it funny how God knows what's going to happen before it happens? He said, you make a covenant with evil people and it will become a snare to you. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Principle is still true. God still knows that, that the inclination of a sinful heart is that when surrounded by people that say, just back up, just compromise, just take it easy, just go soft, just be light, just don't offend anybody, that we will always back up thinking that's the way we're going to win somebody. When in reality is... Most people aren't strong enough, and they get won over themselves. Thirdly, the consequences of a nation in crisis and a broken covenant. They would not drive out the enemy, so God said, I'm not going to drive them out. Look at verse 11. And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. You see, diminished power is always the result of diminished faith. When my faith weakens, my power is weakened with it. Their faith in God was weakened by putting their faith in other gods, by trying to add a little of this and a little of that to their Christianity. And what you end up with that is you end up with the spirituality of America today where everybody's spiritual and nobody's spiritual. They, they watered it down. They softened it up. 
trying to think that, well, we'll get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, you know, we'll have a little Hindu and a little Buddhism, a little Christianity and a little this and, and a little of this faith over here and that faith over there. And we just kind of put it all together. That's not the way the gospel works. And that's not the way our God works. Our God says, I'm the one God. You serve me. Amen. And they forgot it. Look at this quote from Professor Arnold Arthur Kundal. We should all be better off today if we bore in mind that in an age when the chariot has long since been superseded as a weapon of warfare, a faithful and righteous reliance upon the Lord is the stoutest weapon in the armory of a nation or an individual. Failure was a result of letting the enemy get a foothold in the land. Now, we can debate the, when the enemy started to turn our land away. We can debate whether it was when prayer was out of school or anything else. But I want to tell you, it always happens when God's people are not salt and light. Because God's people as salt and light are the seasoning of a society and we are the light that keeps a society from going dark and when the church becomes just a holy cluster inside of walls and it doesn't impact the community in which it lives then it ceases to have a reason to exist we don't meet to meditate on our navels and sing kumbaya and roast marshmallows we meet to be equipped to go out and do that which God put us on this earth to do. And they forgot it. Here's a God who had revealed himself. You know, you hear people say this. You know, I tell you, I wish I'd lived at the time of Jesus. I tell you, if I'd seen Jesus walking on earth, if I'd seen Jesus walking on water, if I'd seen Jesus raising the dead, I, I would be a person of great faith. No, you wouldn't. Because the people that saw him do it weren't. He did miracles, and, it, and you read the gospel, and it says, and many turned and followed him no more. You know why? Because following Jesus is tough. And most people don't want to pay that price. And the children of Israel got tired of being different. Okay, you want to know the parallels? Let's just bring it up to the 21st century. The children of Israel wanted to have everything the world had, they wanted to talk like the world. They wanted to watch everything the world watches. They wanted to do everything the world does. They wanted to dress just like the world. They wanted to mimic the world and imitate the world so the world would think they were cool. I want to tell you something. Can I just tell you something? The world doesn't think we're cool when we do that. They think we've got nothing any better than them, so why should they give up anything when it looks like we haven't given up anything? It looks like we're just like them. Except maybe our T-shirt has a different message on it. But I want to tell you, I've seen people with T-shirts on that have church names on it. And I, I just want to walk up and say, if I buy you a plain T-shirt, will you change it? Because you're killing me. See, just because you got the T-shirt and got the hat doesn't mean you've got the walk. Anybody can buy the T-shirt. The people of God forgot their calling. They forgot their covenant. You see, they allowed little things to get in and little things became big things. And so here's the question tonight. What is the little thing that if we don't deal with it, 
will cause us to end up in captivity to our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me give you some verses. Psalm 62 and verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Proverbs 10, 29, The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright. Psalms 9 and verse 9, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who, follow, who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek him. Our problem is not the atheist. Our problem is not the agnostics. Our problem is not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the left wing, and it's not the right wing. Our problem is that the church has forgotten that the Lord is our stronghold. And we've put our trust in other things and in other people. And let's be honest, they've all let us down. You put your trust in a preacher, he's going to let you down. You put your trust in politics, politician's going to let you down. Hey, we've elected people that were conservative. We still haven't changed the abortion laws. We've had multiple chances to do that. We've had a season when we thought, well, if the conservatives could just be in control. Well, not that many years ago, the Republicans had full control of the House and the Senate and the White House. We still didn't change the abortion laws. Let me tell you what somebody told me the other day. Dan will edit this out. And I got this from a Washington insider. He said, do you know who the number one contributor to these people that are trying to rule out the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, do you know who the number one contributors are to that? It's the National Rifle Association. Because it gives them a platform on which to raise money. By supporting people that are against them, they can raise more money to get us to give them money because they look like they're supporting us. When you look at the lobbyists in Washington, D.C., the people that are lobbying are often people that are lobbying the other side because that knows that, they know that helps them raise money. Could I appeal to you to get over that this world is going to change by better policies and better laws and better people in government and realize that this world is never going to change ultimately until there's a new heaven and a new earth and old things are passed away and all things have become new. But could I appeal to you that instead of all the time you spend trying to figure out what the opposition is doing to what you like or don't like, why don't you spend that time praying for God to turn our hearts back to him? Amen. It would be a better use of our time. Instead of watching 12 hours of Fox News or CNN or whatever you watch, 
Try to just spend an hour with God in prayer and see if maybe things won't change, but you'll sure feel better about who's in charge. Lord, do you know? Yep, I sure do. Lord, do you realize? Got it. Know it. Already there. You see, the reason that we get obsessed with things is because we want to be comfortable in this world. But church family, God never made us to be comfortable in this world. This world is not our home. God didn't save us to make us happy. He saved us to form us into the image of his son. And when we compromise with the world, we look less like Jesus and have a less of a witness than God desires for us to have. The, the problem is not all the things that we worry about. The problem is we have presented to this world a pseudo-Christianity and a facade of New Testament Christianity, far different from what the New Testament talks about. Somebody said to Billy Graham one time, and I won't get this quote exactly, but somebody said to Billy Graham one time, that you're preaching, you're trying to take the church back, you're trying to take us back 200 years. He said, no, I'm not. I'm trying to take us back 2,000 years to the book of Acts. Folks, that's the only kind of church that's going to have the impact that it needs to have is an Acts 2 church where people are praying, they're serving, they're loving, they're fellowshipping, they're having things in common, they're meeting the needs of one another, and they are committed to the Lord God and his will on this earth. That's what God's called us to. Not easy. Not easy. But you know, I, I don't do, I don't listen to those people that call me and ask for money. I don't give a dime to any organization that's not a Christian organization because ultimately whatever they're doing is not eternal. I want to invest in helping people get to heaven in helping people come to know Christ. And I get all this stuff telling me I need to do this and I need to do that. And in a few weeks, I'll stand where a guy said to me, you know, he said, that's the most frightened I ever was when I stood at that podium where the presidents of the United States have stood and I prayed. He said, I've never been more frightened in my life. And to be honest with you, I'll probably be frightened. The room will be empty. They won't be there because there's no vote right after I, you know, right after I pray. So nobody will hear it, but uh, it will be in the congressional record. But I want to tell you this, I'm more frightened that God would look at us as a nation and say the same thing that he said to the people in the book of Judges. Now, we're not in a covenant. America's not in a covenant with God, but the church is. Israel was in a covenant as a nation. We are not. But I'm more frightened that God would look down and say, you know, I've had all this God bless America I can stand. Because you are singing God bless America out of one side of your mouth and you're profaning me with your actions out of the other side. I choose to believe the way you're acting, not the two minutes you're singing the song. God may bless us with the same thing he blessed 
the people in the time of judges with. He may bless us with judgment so that we cry out, God, send someone to deliver us from the mess that we have gotten ourselves in. Let's pray together. In just a moment, we're going to present some new members to the church. But I want to ask you a question with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Would you not agree with me, I think you would, that America as a whole has forsaken the Lord? Would you not agree that by our decision-making, by our choices, that we have certainly done enough to provoke the Lord to anger? Would you not agree that the hand of plunderers, whether in the housing market or the banking market or wherever it might be, that plunderers have taken away things we have worked hard for? Could it be that God orchestrated that because we were putting our faith in those things instead of himself? Would you not agree that it could possibly be we're on the verge of the time when we can no longer stand before our enemies? Because quite honestly, we have so few friends in this world. Countries that we saved from dictatorship now spit at the very thought of our name. We've lost most of our friends. We've lost our moral high ground. We've lost our way. And unless God sends a judge or a deliverer, some man or some woman, Maybe the days of God driving out our enemies and covering us and providing for us are over. And if they are, will it cause us to curse God or will it cause us to cry out to him in repentance and say, Lord, God, help us. This is the mess we have gotten ourselves into. So quietly in this moment, if you're coming to uh, be presented as a member, I want to ask you just to come. And some of you may want to come to this altar and pray tonight. Some of you may want to just turn around and take the seat where you are and use it as an altar. Or some of you may just want to bow your heads before the Lord. But 